John 4 of this, um, this week of this study. And last week, we had that beloved verse, John 3.16, and we uh, acknowledged that it is the gift of God to the world. And it was news to the, actually very shocking news to the Jews to hear that this gift of the Messiah is for the world, not just for the Israelites, the Jewish nation, but it was for the world, all people, the gift. Only, the only Savior that was going to come was Jesus Christ. That was the only option they had. And so now we go into chapter 4, and Jesus continues to reveal himself as the Savior of the world, okay? Um, In verses 1 to 6, we'll read those. And now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again from Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus has a divine appointment. Nothing that he does is second guess, throw it together. He has his, all the work that he has cut out for him to do has been assigned since the foundations of the earth were created. Same is for us here too. There's nothing new here. God is in charge. He's sovereign. And Jesus had divine destinations and things and appointments that he had to get done here on earth to do the Father's will. And this one was one of the ones that he had on his list to, um, to run into, a divine appointment. So his popularity is growing. John the Baptist, remember, is decreasing and Jesus is increasing um, and Jesus did, he wanted to avoid any public rivalry or any tension, so he was going to leave Judea. There's a little parenthesis there that says Jesus, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples did. You remember, grammar is added later, um, but this is in here, we can just kind of weigh it in. If baptism, just a food for thought here, ladies and gentlemen, if baptism is necessary for salvation, then Jesus would probably have baptized, okay? There's always that question of the man on the cross, you know, the thief on the cross, he didn't get baptized or whatever. But this is a verse that kind of lets us know that it's a public statement of faith and it's in obedience because Jesus himself was baptized, but it maybe was not a necessary element to salvation. And so he's going to leave there and he's going to return to Galilee and it says that he had to, he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria, um, from where he was going, um, was a direct route. That was truly the most, as the bird flies, as the cow path went, that was the way to go. But most Jews avoided it due to their disdain for the Samaritans. One commentary, one Bible scholar actually writes this about it. The bitter rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans had been going on for centuries at this time. After the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians, the ten tribes of Israel, 
this is from 2 Kings, were carried away into exile from their own land in Assyria. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and other areas and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in these cities. This was causing intermarriage. It was not a pure race of Jews anymore. The foreign non-Jews intermarried with the population of Jews who had not been deported, forming a mixed race known as the Samaritans. The new settlers brought their idolatrous religion with them, which became intermingled with the worship of Yahweh. In time, however, the Samaritans abandoned their idols and worshipped Yahweh alone, although it was in their own fashion. So they were worshiping the one true God, but they were doing it very kind of convoluted, not the way the true Israelites did. Well, they were Pharisees. So when the Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah, their first priority was to rebuild the temple, remember? And they're professing loyalty to Israel's God. The Samaritans offered their assistance. You remember that story? Hey, we're going to hear, we, we believe in Yahweh. Let us help us build, let, let us help us, you rebuild it. But the Jews' blunt refusal enraged the Samaritans, who then became their bitter enemies. Rebuffed in their attempt to worship at Jerusalem, the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews later destroyed that temple during the intertestamental period, further worshiping the relationships between the two groups. So this is after centuries of mistrust. There was a deep animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, and this was very apparent um, to the leaders of Jesus' day. And actually, for those Jewish leaders, if they really wanted to insult Jesus, they would call him a Samaritan. So you get a picture of how the tension and the hate and the just, we, we just do not get along with you people. There is no fellowship here whatsoever. But he's telling the disciples that he had to pass through Samaria. He had to go there. Jesus was always conscious of doing the Father's will. And this is the whole reason he came to earth, was to fulfill the Father's will. Throughout the book, the Gospel of John, we have um, Jesus in 3.14. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. In chapter 10, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And in chapter 20, he says, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. He had absolutes that he had to do, and going through, through um, uh, Samaria was one of those musts that he had to do. Verse 6 tells us that there was Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well was there. When we read something like this, we really have to stop and ponder and see, well, what's the significance at Jacob's well? Well, he was traveling, he was thirsty, and he sits down by it. But this is significant that they are having this divine appointment at Jacob's well. Jacob's well represents a place, it's a place where Israel miserably failed to uphold their promise to serve and obey God. The Old Testament has several examples of that. 
And again, I'm going to just make a little reference um, to this. Jacob had made a promise to spare the Shechemites after his daughter, Dinah, was sexually violated. To confirm the agreement, the men of Shechem agreed to be circumcised. Now, circumcision was the symbol of God that he had ordained as a sign of the holy covenant between men and God. So this is, very, this is a huge covenant here, an a, um, a agreement that they had with the Shechemites, and they used circumcision to, to seal it. However, after the circumcision ceremony, what happens? Two of Jacob's sons, they go in there and they murder all of the Shechem's, uh, many of the men, in violation of the contract. A horrible failing of man on their end. Also at Shechem, God had promised Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed through them. Okay, God's keeping his end of the promise. That's this promise. But again, we have... Um, Early in the Jewish history, the patriarch Jacob, again, did not destroy the family idols. Remember when he had them there? What did he do? He had an opportunity to destroy them. Rather, he buries them, right? Again, not trusting God, a failure on man's part. Did not totally trust God. Another historical event, um, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery near Shechem, um, lied to their father about Joseph, um, so it was, it was an area, it was a place, Jacob's well in, in Shechem was a place, was a constant reminder throughout history that God is, made a promise to, to his people, but man constantly is failing over and over and over. Man is incapable of keeping a promise, and only God can keep a promise, not based on men's failures. So here it was, he was meeting this Samaritan woman at this well, at this place where it was just a, one event after another of man's, yeah, I promise, and failure, 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 failure. So keep that in mind as we look at what happens there. Um, it says that Jesus was wearied, which tells us that he is still subjected to the physical limitations of his full humanity. He's fully God, but fully human. So he's tired, and he sits down about the sixth hour. We can calculate that to be if the sunrise was at 6 a.m., six hours later, it was probably high noon. So the scene has been set. Jesus is in the right place at the right time for a divine appointment that was made before the foundations of the world were even created, okay? Who is Jesus meeting for this divine appointment? Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now there's some kind of, mm, I'll just slip this in here, not a lot not all Bible scholars agree that all the disciples left Jesus alone there, okay? Some of them were hanging out, and one of them very well could have been John, the beloved disciple, because there's a lot of detail in this, and if this was enemy territory, they probably wouldn't have left Jesus alone sitting there by himself. So there were probably a handful of disciples still there, but most of them went to find some food. Um, So they had gone off to find food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? And I, a woman of Samaria. She probably didn't even look at him. 
she probably had, had her head down low, I mean, and just said something to him. And um, how can you even talk to me, she's saying. For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. We just checked that out. <clears throat> Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God that we talked about that last week and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water and who are you, basically? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, and so did his sons and his livestock. I almost want to think that she's in the back of her mind thinking, and they're all dead, so where's the living water here, right? So she's right? So um, this is just paraphrased by me in there, but so she's asking, you know, where are you going to get this? How are you going to do it? And who are you? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will be thirsty. I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So, what an interesting conversation that they're having here at this well. The well, Jacob's well, was not the closest well to where this woman lived. And this was not the coolest part of the day. The women of the town would get together and they would all cackle and do their little, you know, you know what we are, women, kind of, let's go to the, you know, you want to go... Let's go to the store together, whatever. And they'd socialize and they'd go there and they, and it would take a long time to fill up their water jugs. They were there a long time. And then they had to carry it all back. So it had to be in the cooler part of the day and it had to be something that was closer, right? But this woman, the well was further out and it was at a hotter part of the day. And so she was a, a, an outcast, as we know, her reputation was not good. She was avoiding public shame. She was just very much a loner of depressed lonely woman. And Jesus, Jesus speaks to her. Whoa. That is shattering all cultural barriers, all of them. A shocking breach of social customs of the time. First of all, men do not speak to women in public, even their own wives. We'll talk about it at home. Secondly, rabbis do not associate with immoral women. Okay? And thirdly, we know Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. So this is very, I mean, Nicodemus was shocked last week when, you know, it's not just for the Jews, but this woman's like, what is happening here? And there were, I believe, a couple disciples there kind of witnessing. And Jesus asked her, to drink from her cup. He speaks to her, and she's taken back in astonishment. Why would a Jewish man defile himself by using her utensils? They couldn't even drink out of the same cup or use the same utensils because their spittle and their germs were contaminated. I have to just stop and ponder. I'm sorry, i got to say something about COVID here. 
Jesus went to the leopards, didn't he? Jesus met. We have an immune system. And I'm on my high. I'll just stand over here. This is Molly Gallagher talking. We have an immune system, and we're going to do this. We're going to do the things that we need to do. But in the back of your minds, please consider this. God has wonderfully made us with an immune system to build it up, and, and we've been living throughout history with this stuff. For us to even think, and again, it's an individual thing, and then we have to figure out how we're going to work in society, okay? Because I, you know, I wear my mask and I do things. But is it possible that by us not trusting the immune system, the body that God gave us and how wonderfully we're made, we're basically shaking our fists at God and saying, you didn't do good enough here. We got to do this other stuff. And I will even venture to say this. It puts us on a slippery slope of the sexuality thing too. I don't like how you made me, God. I want to be a man instead of a woman. So just ponder it. Just ponder it and just say, I don't want you to be rebels and get into trouble, but in your own heart of hearts, just kind of think about what's going on here. The world system and what God wants us to do and, and you know, and just and be thankful for God and be joyful for God. You can wear your mask and do whatever, but you know what? When our number comes up to die, we're out of here, okay? Not to worry. I guess the biggest thing I'm saying about this is we don't live in fear and anxiety, Okay, so he speaks to her, and he even asks to share her germs. Oh, my goodness. All right. <laughs> Jesus goes on to verse 10, and he tells her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you, that you would be asking me for the water. So this, is, this poor woman is like, whoa, whoa. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, you've really got me confused. You flipped the table. The conversation's flipped around now. I'm the one with the water, you're the one who's thirsty, and now you're here telling me you have water and I'm thirsty? Okay? So he's got definitely control of the conversation. He's talking about this living water, this living water, which is spiritual cleansing for salvation and forgiveness. This is the new covenant. We're at the well, Jacob's well, where the old covenant over and over and over got broken, broken, broken by the, by the Israelites, the human end of it. This is a new covenant now that's not dependent on that. And this is going to be healing and eternal. And it's going to be for our salvation. This is something new to replace the old. And plus this new covenant, this living water washes you clean, but it, always, it also gives you the desire and the ability to live an obedient life that glorifies God. That is something the Old Testament could not do. The Old Testament with the law and all that stuff, that was there to show us how we fell short. This living water, this new covenant at the Jacob's well is something that says you will even have the ability, a new heart and a desire to do the right thing. Boy, she's really skeptical. She's skeptical of his ability to provide the water. You have nothing to draw with. Where, the well's deep. Where are you going to get this water? And, and, and who are you? And where are you going to get it? All these questions are in her head. But before she could receive this gift of living water, she's got to acknowledge two things. 
One, she has to acknowledge her sin. Two, she has to acknowledge her need for a Savior. That equals a conviction. Okay? Acknowledge our sin. Acknowledge our need for a Savior equals a conviction. Let's see what happens here. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Go call your husband and have him come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. By her acknowledging Jesus as a prophet, she is, she is acknowledging her sin. She's basically saying to him, everything you're telling me about myself is true. I am not going to argue that and say, no, I don't. Okay? She is confessing. She's saying, you're a prophet. I, I, I confess I'm in agreement with you. What you're saying is true about me. Um, you're right. She's not going to hide it. She's not turning, you know, she's, she's basically turning from her sin here. In James 5:16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Having a clean heart, confessing our sins, acknowledging it. When we confess our sins, yeah, God already knows they're there, but we're in agreement with him. We're saying, yes, I, I, I confess. We don't have to ask for forgiveness. We just say, thank you for your forgiveness. I confess and I thank you for your forgiveness that has washed me. So we have the, the conviction there in verse 20. It carries on. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, on this mountain. But you say, you the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she's still struggling where all this stuff's going to happen. It's got to be a, a place. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father you, the Samaritans, worship what you do not know. They had a twisted understanding of worship. Okay, that's what that means. We, the Jews, the Israelites, worship what we know because salvation was given to them. The law was given to them. Okay, they have the truth. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who, sp I who speak to you am he. Now, she wanted to know where to go to worship Yahweh. And the Jews and the Samaritans were in disagreement about it. Um, you know, part of their contention and, you know, not getting along with each other for all these decades, hundreds of years. But under this new covenant, this new living water, what Jesus is bringing that's new at this place of, of the well, Jacob's well, he's telling her that the, the place of worship would not matter anymore. It's how we worship that would matter, the nature of our worship. She needed to know how, 
how, how does this even happen? In spirit and in truth? Jesus is explaining to her that it's in spirit and truth. It's not a reference to the Holy Spirit here. That's a reference to our spirit that's inside of us, which basically is he's telling her worship must be internal. Worship comes from the heart. It's not dependent on rituals and behaviors and things that we do. It, it's a heartfelt thing. And the truth calls for this heart worship to be consistent with Scripture, with the truth. So he was teaching that it is an inward change of heart worship that is centered on the Word of God. The Father is seeking such worshipers. The Father is drawing these worshipers to himself and calling them. We don't know who he's all calling. We throw it out a wide net. We throw it out. It's God who opens up a heart. And that's who he's drawing. That's where the Spirit is coming into play. Holy Spirit with our spirit that's within us. So she needed to know where to worship didn't matter anymore. It was more the nature of it, how to worship in the spirit and the truth. And she needed to know who to worship. And what does he say to her? I am he. I am he. It was he who just told her everything about her. And do you remember up in well, going down, I think, she says, well, I'll get to that. She goes, when she tells the town, she says, come and see a man who has told me everything about me. And up here where it says, I believe in the Messiah. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Isn't he telling him her all about her and stuff? The light bulb's clicking in her head. This, this is the Messiah. And then he says, I am he. Now, in the original text, in verse 26, it says this, I who speak to you am. I am. And he, the, Christ made many I am statements in the book of John. One commentator says there's 23 I am statements. Um, we're going to learn that there's seven of these I am statements that include a metaphor. I am the door, I am the vine, I am the sh shepherd, I am the gate. But he is, he, he's it. Period. He's the gift. He's God's gift that's available to all. The gift of the Messiah. So, this is the conversation with this defiled woman. Back at the ranch, we have the disciples show up on the scene. Verse 27. Just then, I love it, just then, perfect timing just then, divine intervention, it just happened to be just then. It's like um, at this point, at this very moment, divine providence at work, sovereign, supreme power of everything. The disciples show up to hear the last part of this interaction with this woman. History is under God's absolute control. Our election is under God's absolute control. God puts kings in, God takes kings out. We still do our duty and vote right? God's still in charge, though. We will, amen. <laughs> the disciples witnessed several things here. They witnessed his declaration that he is the long-awaited Messiah. They show up just then. As the disciples come back, they marveled. 
And it's not a marvel like, wow, isn't this cool? It's marveled like, what is he doing? They may have even come alongside John or some of the other disciples that were there saying, what the heck? You're supposed to be watching him. What's he doing over here with this? What are you doing? Was he talking to a woman? But no one said anything and asked him, probably out of either they were too dumbfounded to say anything or too much respect that they were not going to interrupt the conversation that he was having. They were puzzled. What's going on? But they witnessed the fact that he had told her that he is the Messiah. And they were also witnessing the whole breaching of the societal, all the norms of society that had come into play here. He just was not doing things as you're supposed to do. This perfect timing was not coincidental. The disciples show up then because Jesus is continually teaching the disciples, right? This is a crash course in discipleship. What do we do? We make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the church does. We need to learn from this. What do we learn from this? We learn that God's gospel crosses all cultural barriers. It's for the world. It's even for our enemies. It's even for our enemies. It's not just for, oh, the people I go to church with and everything hang out. It's for those people you see peacefully rioting in Pennsylvania. These lost middle-something kids, these 20-year-olds, that probably how they got connected, lost, whatever. You know, we can stand, we can pray against, but can pray for those people that are involved in that. That's what they need. The anger, the rage that's out there that's fueling all this stuff that's in society, the hate that's there. They don't need to be shunned by the church. They need prayers. Jesus is saying to them, even our enemies, he's teaching the disciples that. In haste, she runs home to to her town. In haste, she runs home. Come and see. Come and see all the things that he told me. He knows everything about me. Her behavior must have been so different as she ran into that town. She didn't come out the back alley with her jug of water and hide out over here, waiting for the women to mock her. She bursts into that town. You can just probably see the glow on her face, the excitement where she's telling them, come and see this man. That would really, what's up here, man? Maybe we should check this out, okay? So here they go all the way back to the well, which is a long way, with this woman just all over the place. (laughs) A Jesus freak, you know? It's like she's just on fire for God. And so they get there. They follow her to the back to the well. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Boom, there it is again. Continues to teach them. The important thing here is doing the Father's will. That is more important than food. Doing the Father's will was more satisfying to Jesus than restoring his own physical well-being. It's a self-abandonment. The spiritual work we do pales 
I mean, it, it puts our physical needs in, in it pale. Our physical needs pale in the spiritual work that's out there. It's a self-abandonment. It really is. We are so self-absorbed in America that if we don't eat at the right time or do whatever we do or drive the best car or whatever, then our world is shattered. We have got to flip this around. The satisfying thing for us is doing the will of God, is promoting the gospel, is restoring a lost sinner to his Savior, to God. Jesus is telling them fulfillment, real fulfillment, is better than a good meal. And he must do the Father's will, a constant devotion to the Father. That brought him joy and true fulfillment. Now, we can sit down and have a nice meal or get a drink of water and say, that tastes so good. I'm just so full. I am so satisfied. But how many of us have really had the satisfaction of sharing the gospel with somebody? You know, next week you have the opportunity. You can bring them to CBS. (laughs) I'll put a little plug in there. If there's someone that God is laying on your heart to come, there's a lot of lonely people out there that are afraid to get out of their house. And you just can't write it off and say, well, they probably won't come. I'll tell you this, side note. When I, um, when I moved here from being a teaching director in California, and I moved here and I signed that little registration form and asked me for my previous CBS history, I almost didn't check teaching director. I almost didn't put that on a... But then I had to be honest, so I put it on there and stuff, and so I got, you know, children's teacher, this and that and everything. And then when the, the previous teaching director before me was stepping down, thinking about retiring and stuff like that, um, they didn't come and ask me. They didn't come and ask me. They just kind of, you know, and I'm chomping at the bit. Because <laughs> I know, I felt, I knew what God was calling me for, and and they, and they didn't ask, and they didn't ask, and, and the previous teaching director came and visited me on the farm, and she's like beating around, and I finally say, why don't you just ask me? Just ask, well, and you know what her answer was to me? Your name has come up, but we think you're too busy because you work full time. So we don't always know, do we? We don't always know if someone wants to come to, to the Bible study or not. We don't know if somebody wants to be a friend or whatever. We need to ask. We don't know if the Father is calling them or not. So ask. Reach out. The time is now. Christ is telling the disciples that the harvest is great. We need to do it now. Constant devotion. Here it is in verse 35. He says this. Do you not say there are yet four months and then the harvest comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. What is he telling them to do here? He's telling them to say, look what's coming from, the, from Samaria. Look who's coming. The Samaritans are coming right now through the field down here to Jacob's well. The harvest is right. I believe he's pointing off to these people, these townspeople that this woman was bringing to see Jesus. Do not wait. The harvest is now. Already, verse 36, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Who's he talking to right there? I bet she's talking about that Samaritan woman right there. 
getting her, getting her rewards there. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together, for here the saying holds true. One sows, the other reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. We do it together. We work together. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 9, The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We can't be sitting down, especially today as the, time, as the end draws near. We need to be out. We can't be shut down. If we can't get what Satan's trying to do here by shutting us out of our churches and keeping us isolated and alone, wake up, ladies, okay? Now's not the time to keep the church isolated. I'm going to get myself in trouble. I know some of you are going to go home and your husband's going to say, she told you to do what? <laughs> you know my heart, right? Okay. So plentiful harvest from... The harvest was coming. This town was coming. The Samaritans were the harvest. This woman's testimony, um, as she hurried back and was telling them all about it, they come back hoping to find that he was there. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all the things that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to them, they asked him to stay with them, and they stayed for two days. And then they stayed and they said at them, finally, you know what? We don't believe just because of what you said. We now believe that he is the what? Savior of the world. I am not done yet. I have one more point to make. Do you want me to table it or do you want me to do a crash course in it? Crash course. How far does this reach? Okay, we already know that the, 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 he, the gospel is for the world. The gospel is for the world. It reaches even, even detested Samaritans that we don't like, but it also reaches the opposing government at the time, this Roman official. That's going to take it to another population here that where this, this part of this world reaches people who oppress us, the government. We've got some of them around, don't we? Okay? So they stay there for two days in Sychar, um, many people were aware of Jesus. The disciples um, were familiar with that, what was going on. Many of the people around there, chatter, 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 chatter. They just knew that the disciples, Jesus and his disciples were hanging out in Samaria. So they were defiled. Did they even get ritually clean before they left there? Probably not. But Jesus knew he wouldn't be welcomed in his own country. They still saw him as a carpenter's son. And besides, they didn't want him around because they didn't ritually clean themselves before they came back. So they had a, they left. When they go in, the Galileans receive him. But why do they receive him? They receive him because in verse 45, they have seen all that he had done. They witnessed his signs. That's what they saw. They witnessed his signs. And so it was basically based, we believe who you are, we believe that you're this uh, prophet, you can do all this stuff. They were thrill seekers. They were looking for entertainment. I won't go off on my thing with this either. Jesus is more than entertainment. He's more than entertainment. He's more than someone who just does miracles for us or heals us. He's the God who should be worshipped. 
They had a belief in Jesus, but it wasn't a saving faith. They only believed that he was like a miracle worker. And we come across a man in verse 46 that he's an official whose son was ill. Human needs are universal. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel because we all have the same needs. This Roman official was probably in the service of Herod Antipas um, because he was in, in, the, in the leadership there during this time, 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. Antipas was the son of Herod the Great who ruled at the time of uh, Christ's birth. So some speculation was maybe this royal, royal official who became a believer was either who Luke talks about in 8.3 um, as Herod's household manager um, and his wife served Joanna served Jesus, or in Acts 13.1, he could have been one of the co-pastors of Antioch. And that's just speculation, okay? But he was a royal official who had a deep need. His son was sick and dying. He had an urgent read. I'm going to save time by not reading the passage. He had an urgent need. And remember, to have a miracle, we have a human need, and we have a divine intervention, and then we get a miracle. Well, we definitely had a human need. 16 miles to Capernaum, to where Jesus was, this man was hastily coming down. And he asked Jesus to come, to come his son was sick. He's imploring him. He's begging him. Here's a Roman official coming to this carpenter's son, begging him. A humbled position to be in. He had good doctors there. The Romans had great medicine and everything, but no one was able to save this boy. There wasn't a good enough physician available to him or maybe an existed that could help his son. And so this respected member of Herod's court humbled himself and he begged for help from this carpenter's son. Jesus rebukes their feeble and fearful faith because he says it's based on signs. Unless you see a sign, you won't believe. Watch what happens with this Roman official. Jesus says to him, after he says, in verse 30, he says, Go, your son will live. And the man believed. Jesus said it. Go, your son will live. Was there a miracle? Did he know it was saved? No. He didn't need a sign at that. He went because Jesus said, your son is saved. This is a deeper faith now that's happening here with Jesus, with this Roman official. Um, But... Before I miss part, there are two things that he was lacking there. He felt like Jesus needed to be present to, be, to, to heal, and he also believed Jesus could heal, but he couldn't raise him from the dead because he said, hurry up before he dies, okay? Jesus says, go, your son is healed, um, and he believed the word. He believed, and he went. There was no miracles there. So halfway there, his servants meet him and tell him the exact time when his son was healed. And that just confirmed to him that Jesus was the Messiah. And what happened to that man's household? Another harvest? His whole household. His whole household. And what came from that? We don't know if he was a pastor in Antioch with Paul or not. But again, the gospel goes out. It's available to all. Enemies. People who we don't like, people who don't like us, people who are deplorable, people who harm us. The question I want us to ponder today is, are we willing to cross those cultural barriers and bring the gospel to those people? 
God, thank you for this time today. May you be glorified. Amen.